0: Tried Music to Code by yet? Well, why not? Here's a comment Joe left on the website. This is also great music to mow by. I like listening to music while doing yard work to help the monotony of it seem less tedious. This past summer, I started listening to these tracks while doing yard work, and they worked great! I could let the music play in the background without focusing on it, and it seemed to help me concentrate on getting through my tasks. Thanks, Joe. And, you know, now you can download the entire 13-track collection. That's over five and a half hours of Music to Code By for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, back in the studio again, of course. Richard, um, I, I want to call it back to uh, a thing that we did on a road trip somewhere. And I can't remember. You will remember which one exactly it was. I but imagine. we had winners of swag that we were giving away, and it came down to a bunch of people. We called them all up on stage and did a binary sort. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember
1: the binary sort.
0: <laughs> we basically had people <laughs> randomly put up their hands or down their hands, and based on that, uh, the odd person out. I think it was. Yeah, was... And we flip
1: a coin, and then you, I'm sure we had one of those occasions where we were down to the last three people. I'm like, okay, heads or tails, and they all went heads, and we sort of stopped and looked at them and we're like, really, really,
0: yeah, really? exactly, <laughs> right, because they got to choose before we flipped the coin. Yeah. Well. <laughs> been upstaged. Uh-oh. So, uh I think it was Jeff Fritz sent me uh, via Twitter a video on YouTube of the quick sort algorithm illustrated with Hungarian folk dance. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you go there you can check it out. Uh there's a few others in the channel, a few other sort algorithms that they do. Um uh, just uh, there's nothing more to say. Just go look no, at no, it. No, you just have to watch. I'm watching this and staring in awe. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I love it. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I thought. Okay, got. that is a great better know framework, my friend. <laughs> yeah, That's very funny. Thanks to Jeff Fritz for that. Awesome. All right, who's talking to us,
1: buddy? Grab a comment off of show 1377, the one we did with Beth Massey talking about .NET and Visual Studio. Not that long ago. That was just November of 2016. Right, And this comment comes from Joe, who says, thanks, Carl, for the tip on DGML support in Visual Studio. I had no idea it was in there either. And it just so happened that I was doing something this past weekend where it came in extremely handy. Yeah. Not only does Visual Studio have visualizer support, but I also found that they have a library for manipulating DGML files. Yep, that's right. So this is a tool, of course, freely downloadable from Microsoft, like they usually do. Uh, they'll actually do a better job of it. There's, and uh, Doug Cameron chimed in with, I didn't know about that tool. That's awesome. So for uh, giving us some great insight and, new, and an awesome tool to use, Joe, a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET com or via any of our social media. Because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there, we read
0: it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We dance with him. <laughs> All right. And that brings us to our guest. Julia Leusin is Corporate Vice President of the Developer Division, overseeing software development for Visual Studio and .NET Framework, including .NET, all programming languages, user interface, team development and testing tools, as well as platform adoption tools. Leusin joined Microsoft in 1992 has held a variety of technical and management positions while at Microsoft. She was general manager of Visual Studio Business Applications, where she was responsible for enabling developers to easily build business applications on Microsoft server and service platforms. And it goes on and on and on. She's been here a long time, folks, and it's about time we talk to her. Hello, Julia. Good morning. Good morning. And you're not kidding. You you were around since Visual Studio 1.0?
2: Yeah, actually, uh, uh, today, uh, just a few days ago, uh, February twenty fourth, I just crossed my twenty five years with Microsoft.
1: Oh wow! Wow! Congratulations! Yeah, congrats! Thank you! you Thank like you! Bag- I get to have
2: my name engraved in our conference center.
1: Oh! Oh! Right! Of course, there's uh, that whole wall in the in the convention in the conference center there of all of the the long term the twenty five plus years. Right. Oh wow! wow. So you just crossed that threshold because it was – there's one of the tiers where you get it like a bag of M&Ms. is like five years or something.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it used to be a clock and then they went to a, you know, a crystal trophy and I lost track what they give out now, nowadays. Mm.
0: So when we're talking about Visual Studio, we're not – we're talking about before .NET, right? Yeah, sure.
2: Absolutely. The first version of Visual Studio was uh, 1997.
0: And before that, you had Visual C and S- Visual C++, rather, and Visual Basic, and then they sort of converged. Is that sort of what happened?
2: That's exactly what happened. Actually, at the time, the product I was working on is called Visual Interdev. So yeah. it was Visual Interdev, Visual C++, Visual Basic. I don't remember about Fox Pro. That might be in there as well. Visual Fox Pro, and at one They're point we we'll also have the Visual J plus plus. You remember? Oh
0: yeah. Uh, it was yeah. a
2: combination of all of those product, all of our programming language uh, and tools asset. combined that into the first Visual Studio product in 1997.
0: Wow, I was there. I remember it. It's just I'm trying to remember. It's 20 years ago. Yeah, you know, I haven't thought about it in a long time.
2: <laughs> I know. I know. I, my memory faded as well. It's too long ago.
0: Right. Wow, what a what a, a a great story! Visual Studio is going all the way to 2017, where the C sharp language is open source, and so many things are opening up, and it's just amazing.
2: It's a different, it's a new world. It's a different era.
1: Yeah, totally different. So, what was your role in that first version of Visual Studio? What were you working mm. on?
2: So I as I mentioned I was working on Visual Interdev. Mm-hmm. I was a dev lead back then, uh working on our database tools and our uh web project system and things like that. Right. And for people who don't know Visual Interdev, that was our first web development tool. Uh we were programming against ASP and IS, right. not to be confused with ASP.NET, yes, which is yes. much uh, better known um you know afterwards successor afterwards.
1: Yeah. And, and this is really when Microsoft was still trying to figure out web development, right? Like we, we we had we had a bunch of different tools. We were just trying to what was that other product? It was an office product that, that eventually went away, but it it was the, also a web development tool.
2: Uh, oh. I think you were talking about Front Page. Is that what front you were thinking page.
1: about? Frontpage. Yeah. Holy macaroni. Yeah. And the front page extensions for IIS. That's right.
2: That's right. And actually, our project system was built on top of the front page um, extension for IS. We didn't want to duplicate efforts, so we actually right. leveraged uh, the code that they have written.
0: <laughs> Holy <laughs> record set control. That brings, <laughs> that brings back <laughs> memories. <laughs> uh, but these were all early
1: efforts to sort of hide the web from us as developers, too, right? Like you could just, especially coming from the VB world, we were used to using form designers. We just wanted to be able to do the same thing, and it went to the web. It was very yeah, challenging. Yeah,
2: and I think that, I don't know, it's about hiding the web, more about enabling web, uh, you right. know, and really enabling developers with their existing skill set yeah. to be able to program the web was how we thought about it. Uh, yeah. That's why for Visual Internet, we actually got a name of Visual Basics for the web. Uh, we did have a, you know, a lightweight designer built uh, on top of HTML. Uh, that was a, it was a, a endeavor even back then because people are not familiar with the whole HTML format. Mm-hmm. We sure. enabled like kind of the drag and drop motion uh, to create a very simple web page. Uh, and, uh, you know, the fast iterative um, inner loop development, you know, the F5 kind of experience on top of it. And so, uh, I have known many people that you know use Visual InterDev and built their very first website. So it's a uh, it was a a new product you know in this category way back then.
0: Yeah. So I remember back in the day of VB six, Microsoft talking about there being six million Visual Basic developers out there, mostly corporate developers. And they were wanting a way to get onto the web. And ultimately, through Visual InterDev, ASP and .NET, and ASP.NET comes out. And now you've got, you know, web forms. That was a, a remarkable thing for a, your your average corporate visual basic developer to be able to sort of drag and drop stuff for the web. A little bit different today, you know. And I would say that um, the days of just sort of – how should I say this? I won't say – and the days of really ultra-high-level web development are are harder to wrap your head around. And I think those days are sort of gone, don't you think?
2: Well, I think the development paradigm has completely changed. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look at the development paradigm, really in the 60s and 70s, we're talking about the mainframe, and then we have the PC era. And then Visual Basic 6.0, and really what .NET brought to the corporate environment is they enabled the client-server world. And uh, it's both a very rich client as well as a very rich kind of server and web kind of development. And now I think we're really in the mobile and cloud era. And I think the development paradigm has changed. And so our programming language and tools and framework have to change accordingly to support the, the new needs that people have.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I tend to think of those years when the browsers were inconsistent as a really hard time for web development because of that you had to go a little bit lower level and things were changing so fast. And then finally, I think it was around where IE9 came out, you know, in Chrome and all of the browsers seem to be playing nice again and uh, in, in moving forward the standards so that it was easier to use uh, things in JavaScript and not have to write it three or four times for three or four different browsers. jQuery obviously helped out a lot with that. And now I, I sort of see as we're moving into just, you know, the world of Angular and the world of uh, MVC and Web API and all of those great things, that it, it, we are sort of getting back to um, a more standard landscape, I think. Do you agree? Uh,
2: first part, I agree. Actually, I have heard multiple developers tell me that, uh, the fact that, you know, IE had a share it had way back then in the early 2000 kind of era really helped the entire industry standardize on a set of common HTMLs and JavaScript languages and, yeah. you know, and basically runtimes. It really helped uh, all the developers kind of get into a common uh, runtime to kind of target their application, to. And actually I'm hearing more and more from developers uh, lately in the last three four years, with the rise of the mobile platform, mm. they're seeing a highly fragmented world again, yeah it's because back. today it's actually pretty you have to still build your website and and on top of that, you have to build your website both for the desktop form factors as well for the mobile form factors, so the whole like mobile dot kind of you know scenarios, and then you know the you know as you know the 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 browsers on on the different iOS you know on the phones and iPads and different Android devices and desktop the 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 variety of the form factors and the you know and the different versions of the browsers is highly fragmented actually um, out there Uh, we have done um, a study on that and that actually is causing a new set of uh, pains for developers uh, out there today.
1: Well, and we're really just talking about Safari, aren't we there? It's the new <laughs> yeah. it's the new problem browser right because it, it's very popular and it doesn't comply with the current standards
2: uh Safari is one no and I will say that you know in Android because the lack of ability to update oh, so yeah. you know you have all of these different versions of Chrome out there. That was another yeah. big
1: problem for developers to tar- to you know to to uh, to tackle and if you're still using the Android browser, stop that stop it <laughs> don't do that use Chrome right.
2: Well, even Chrome, there's many, many different versions, right?
1: Yeah. Well, and th- thank goodness for Xamarin Test Cloud, because you can now try your app on a whole bunch of phones at once for a fee, but it's still impressive to see, here's what the 100 most popular Android phones look like rendering your page.
2: That's right. That's right. And that is a huge help. Uh, you guys probably have heard, you know, even for very large businesses, this is a real challenge. Uh, mm. I think it was Salesforce uh, a few months ago announced that, you know, they're app was only going to be supported on, you know, Samsung and a couple of other well-known devices just because they couldn't even test on all of the other variations.
1: Yeah, the tail is very, very long.
2: That's right. The tail is very, very long.
1: (laughs) I feel like we sort of jumped ahead, though, Mm. uh, you know, comparing 97 to, you know, 2008, 2009. Can you talk a little bit about your role as Studio became the platform for .NET? Because that's, that seems to me like an amazing change. You had a product that you've been developing for a few years and we all liked, and then, then you changed the whole platform.
2: That's right. I, I love to talk about that era. It's, uh, it's one of the most challenging products I would say I personally end up having to build. Mm. Uh, so around 98, really going back to time, mm-hmm. and uh, the Visual Internet team and the Visual Basic team actually merged. Uh, we become the team that actually uh, built the new Visual Basic.NET, including the IDEs, the compilers, the language, the runtime, the designers, you name it, uh, covering both the client and service scenarios. And uh, I was actually the development manager for that project. So I see that as, a building v1.0 and v7 at the same time because we were writing everything about Visual Basic, yet we also have to deliver VB6 level and plus capabilities on top of a new, entirely new runtime, uh, which is COR and .NET. So that was a you know interesting, challenging project way back then.
1: Yes, it was. The VB people struggled mightily, I think. it was There was a lot of fuss. Yes, it, there was. Because it was such a big change.
2: I completely agree. I think the VB6 um, uh, developer community really struggled with the change to .NET.
0: Yeah. But um, how's VB doing now? I mean, we haven't talked really about VB that much on the show, particularly. We talk about .NET a, a lot, of course.
2: Well, I think that, you know with .NET really coming around as our core platform uh, for our developer community, uh, you know, that was the same time we also had a, you know, a team building the C-sharp language that's led by Anders. Mm-hmm. And uh, today, I think that, you know, in the last 10 years, we really see that the C-sharp developers is the, the people using C-sharp, uh, you know, in terms of usage is the predominant uh, usage on top of .NET. Right. And VB uh, still has, we have, still have many, many corporate developers who we'll have assets in Visual Basic, uh, yeah. and then we c- continue to make sure that they have a great development experience, they're getting advancements yeah. in our IDEs, in our editing capabilities, um, so their assets and their skill can continue to move forward.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: So I also remember moving up you know, a few years in 2005 was when we were trying to spread this IDE environment around. That's when the, the SQL Server Management Tools actually had the same engine.
2: That's right, that's right. They still do.
1: Yeah, yeah they, they have ever since.
2: They still do. That's right. Yo, so I you know, at that time, you know, there were you can as you can imagine, there were um, actually quite a quite a few of our visa partners. Uh, they have the need to build a rich uh, development environment. Uh, they look at the shell, the IDE of Visual Studio, and said, "Hey, it has a menuing infrastructure. It has a command infrastructure. It has a edit- really good, you know, foundational editor." I would love to just build on top of it rather than having to reinvest, you know, the entire thing, you know, Mm. myself. And that's that's actually a a super reasonable uh, kind of request. And SQL Server, um, starting with our SQL Management Studio, was one of the first internal Microsoft partners who came to us and wanting to leverage the core shell to be their shell so they don't have to invest in this, you know, invest all over again. Uh, even to this day, uh, SQL Management Studio is built on top of the Visual Studio IDE. Uh, and uh, you know, obviously, over the years, we have added a lot more SQL assets into the Visual Studio integrated environment, including the SQL Server database tools you know, the SQL Server reporting tools and et cetera.
1: Right. Yeah. Covers a, a wider span of things. But I gotta think that changes the way you build your product to really have these customers that use it differently than what it was originally built for.
2: Yeah, I think that, you know, Visual Studio IDE as a core IDE and, you know, we gradually really evolved that into more a platform where more and more extensions can easily plug in, where more and more scenarios can be easily integrated into the the common IDE. So I think that work was very helpful for both our internal partners as well as it opened up a lot of possibilities for external companies to easily plug in uh, and enable their scenarios to be part of the developer workflow. Uh actually a few years ago we uh open sourced our Python plugin to Visual Studio. It kind of was a you know pretty good example in terms of how you write the entire you know language and debuggers and IntelliSense, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. sort of uh, and with project system. It's like a whole tool set on top of a uh, Visual Studio IDE. And we open source that, you know, to kind of uh, use that as a role model uh or examples for other developers to use and implement similar things.
0: I think it was Visual Studio 2010 where you started uh, rebuilding Visual Studio parts of it in WPF, right? Was that 2010?
2: uh, I think that was 2010. We released it in 2010. Yeah, that sounds right.
0: There's so many transformations Visual Studio has gone through and been rebuilt and rewritten and uh, reimagined, and yet it still feels like the good old Visual Studio we've always had. That's got to be difficult to pull off.
2: Every single one of those uh, rewrite app projects was absolutely stunningly difficult. Uh, I will attest to that. So back in 2010, one of the first things we started actually rewriting uh, was actually you know we're using far more of the WPF technologies for the you know for the overall shell uh-huh. as well as the core editor was entirely rewritten in WPF. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, at the, the time in 2010, it may not be obvious about what are the new capabilities that was brought along. But, you know, lately, if you look at how we can enable like the light bulb light up and the diverse adornment, oh, yeah. all of those new capabilities, it was all built on top of the WPF based editor.
1: Right.
2: Uh, you guys know, you, I'm sure you guys know Miguel.
1: Yes. Sure.
2: Last year at Connect. We were talking a little bit about the various um, uh, how the house developers build softwares. And he kind of, he just went out there and said, well, developers like hacks. And everyone just cracked up. Yeah. Um, And he goes, oh, except the Visual Studio Editor is a thing of a beauty. Yes. Yeah. He, because he was amazed with how well factored and how well architected the thing was. Um, he was like, wow, I, you know, he's like, it's amazing that even the editor was just in Visual Studio that it was actually factored so well. Right. And we did that, um, for, for a reason because we had an editor. We have to go have a nice replacement that's kind of plug-in. It's a plug-in replacement. And then, so, you know, all of these components actually then further integrate into the editor. So, uh, it has to be well thought out and designed.
0: I I love CodeLens. That is probably still one of my favorite things that I, when I discovered it about Visual Studio, that just uh, immediately started using it all the time. And that's another thing that couldn't be done without WPF easily anyway. That's
2: right. That's right. And then obviously then over the, you know, the couple of years we have been working on the rewriting of the compilers, which is another huge project, which is the Rosin project, right? Yeah. Yeah, that one went down for a while, <clears throat> yeah. and uh, but I will say that without you know that particular effort, uh, it will be unimaginable how we can open source uh, the project.
0: Yeah. you know
2: the yeah. BBC Sharp compilers we had previously. So it was a uh, uh, it was a long project, but I think the payoff was uh, was really fantastic.
1: I'm pretty sure in one of our shows I said Roslyn starting to feel like fusion power, just a couple more years away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And then, but then when they delivered it, we—I think we did a show with Mads Torgensen and We talked about this is this represents a Cambrian explosion yeah. of of uh, <laughs> capabilities. And and I just talked to him again. I saw him. I was down in Redmond and said, you know, that we said that like two, three years ago. It's happened now. Yep. Like just the how C sharp has spread.
2: That's right. That's right. And I really see that. You know, with the I will say that you know once we decided to. Open source, you know, .NET and make it cross-platform. Uh, we have, we have seen nothing but overwhelming encouragement from the community and a lot of, uh, help and participation in making our open source project better. Uh, obviously last year at the Connect, we announced, you know, Samsung, uh, for their Tizen operating system decide to choose, um, uh, to, you know, .NET and, mm. uh, and C-Sharp as the language for their platform, Great. Uh, you know, instead of Java, etc. And so it really shows the momentum that we're now having, you know, across different industry segments.
1: You know, it occurs to me that the Visual Studio IDE being open is why F-Sharp exists. Because when we, as the .NET Rocks guys, first ran into Don Syme, it was an MSR paper I read of his talking about experimenting with different languages. And rather than having to build a dev environment himself, he was just using the Visual Studio IDE. And I think the first bits we looked at were the initial efforts that would eventually become F-sharp. So it's like F-sharp would never have existed if Studio wasn't open the way it is.
2: Yeah, and I think that you know, F-sharp would not have existed if .NET the runtime wasn't as flexible and powerful as it is. And, you know, and they were able to make very rapid progress with a very small MSR team to just prototype ideas as extensions into Visual Studio. Mm -hmm. And that's actually one of the key things is that Visual Studio as the IDE from both the tooling and the framework perspective are very extensible. Uh, And then this is why we were, you know, we were blessed with a very vibrant uh, VSIP community. Some of them are, you know, are control vendors from you know the VB6 days, and mm-hmm. they still build a lot of you know additional tools and you know and additional runtime some framework. Uh, we obviously now have the NuGet infrastructure to support them better. Right. Uh, we also have a lot of uh, IDE extension vendors who you know add additional um, tools inside of our IDE to make the overall you know experience better for the customers. The extension is actually great.
0: Yeah, and I'm thinking of our sponsor today, Developer Express with Code Rush. Yeah. You know all the great yeah. That's like playing a video game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I
1: remember Mark Miller showing us changing the order of parameters and the way when you swap them, the words move different a different speed from the comma. So the comma just sort of slid yeah. very gracefully. <laughs> it, it was very video game-ish, but beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful to look at.
2: I have to say, as a developer, uh, you know, if you think about the programming experience is as enjoyable as playing <sighs> video games, that's a really a very high
1: price.
0: Yeah, sure is. Well, uh, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to announce a relatively unknown Windows API function going way back to the Windows API. And oh. this is called Split Blit, or Split BLT, which returns the uneaten portion of a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. <laughs> You're a silly I man. know I am. And that's an old joke, too. That I think I told that joke last in 1994. <laughs> <laughs> Back when we were still bit blitting? That's right. Yeah. It's actually time to give away a experience subscription from our friends at Developer Express. And uh, they want you to become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and... Leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com superhero. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Oh, no, I don't have my clappas. No, no. No, seriously. You left him in the booth. That's right, I did. Hang on a second. (laughs)
1: That's only because I saw you with him there last week. Yes. (laughs)
0: Yes, I got Uh, him. I got him. I got him. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Michael Kleinhaus from Burnsville, Minnesota. Uh, Congratulations, Michael. Yeah. 'll glad for you I'll sir. From Michael from Burnsville, Minnesota. Minnesota. Nice. Yeah, it's it's all okay up there. Uh, and uh, Michael just won the D Experience subscription from our friends at Developer Express just for being a member of the .net Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to com. click on the big get free stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And uh, all right, Julie, it's your turn. We ask all our guests, if you had $5,000 right now to spend on technology, what do you think you'd buy?
2: You know, I saw that question coming, and uh, I was sitting here and noodling, and I, I really don't have anything I want to buy with $5,000. You know what I think I would do if you give me $5,000 for gadgets? Mm-hmm. I would donate it to an education cost.
1: Ah, That's a good one. Yeah. You can get a lot of Raspberry Pis for that and get a lot of kids excited about uh, electronics. Yep.
2: there's a lot of Raspberry Pis you can buy. We are actually uh, we have a project right now. My team is working on it. So uh, we're uh, it started with our collaboration with BBC in UK. Uh, it's a great programming board called Microbits. Mm. It's really fun to teach kids how to program, and we have a very nice little drag and drop, you know, block based development environment. And it also shows you TypeScript code on the other side. It's fabulous. I love to get buy a lot of. Uh, micro bits and boards, you know, was the $5,000 and hand it to a whole school. That would be great.
0: That's a cool idea. It's called micro bits. It's called micro bits. Yes. And wow, we got to get a link to that and put it in the show notes. I'm working on it right now. Yeah. I like that. I'm always looking for, you know, great fun ways to engage kids. And um, that, that sounds like a, a fantastic uh, resource.
2: That is actually uh, we were uh, my team was in the uh, uh, the education expo in the uh, UK uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, you know just watching the what the kids can do with those, you know programming these that board which has two buttons has a little bit of LED, it's great fun.
1: That's awesome. It's um, I think it's one of the challenges for a tool like Visual Studio because I think. Carlos I know that probably true of you, it's true of me. Our first dev environments were command lines that were very simple. Yep. Which one was it? Uh, my f- the my first machine was a TRS-80 Model 1.
0: Yeah. With 4K oh, RAM in it.
1: Wow. But it wasn't, the upgraded version of that, Level 2, had a Microsoft BASIC. The first one, was, it was a tiny
0: BASIC. Ah, the, you know, ten print quote hello world close quote right? And I started really programming in Quick Basic and uh, using third-party tools from a company that I later went to work for, Crescent Software, that did all sorts of stubbing out of uh, unnecessary uh, libraries, and you could you could get a hello world down to like four k, I think, uh, and I think the default was about sixty-five k, but if you stub out the things that you're not using. Yeah. So yeah, it's been a long time.
2: <laughs> it has been awesome. I do remember when I started Microsoft in ninety two, we were working on Microsoft Access. My B C development machine has four meg
0: yeah. right. of RAM. Yeah.
2: And we know basically we were constantly struggling with how do we fit everything into memory and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Great fun times.
0: They were fun times.
1: They were, absolutely. And, and, and you know, I, I just look at getting kids involved in development and looking at how much more we can do with computers. I think their expectations are super high. You know, if you've grown up with an iPad, yeah. your expectations of programming are going to be very different. Yeah. and uh, I completely
2: was. agree with that. And that's actually one of the new challenges because I start programming learning basic as well. And we were super happy with like, you know, have Hello World, have little stick person print on screen. We'd be like, wow, accomplishment. Yeah. But nowadays, the kids are Look at it. They're like, whatever. It has to be highly interactive.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. T- touch and gesture and voice. These are all
0: prerequisites now.
2: Yeah, and, uh, it- and how do you teach kids program? Was that it's it is a it is a new uh, it's a new challenge for sure.
0: Well, I got to say that you know the programming experience in Visual Studio has always been easier to wrap one's head around for me anyway, and people that I know than, uh, you know, just your, your entry-level uh, programming paradigms for most other platforms. Microsoft has always been good about removing the plumbing that we don't need and letting us focus on the stuff that we do need.
2: Thank you. That is definitely one of our core design goals is that, you know, we the way we, we talk about it is that the way we design our product is really to think about how can we get developers really focus on the things only they can focus on yeah. and not on all the plumbing and not on all of the things that they don't have to worry about. Mm-hmm. And that is actually the power of Visual Basic in the very, very beginning that you don't have to learn the Windows messaging and, you know, all of the intricacies about if you have to go program, you know, Windows app on C++. Right. But really think about what is the event handle, what is actually your trying to get accomplished get done for your application
1: yeah well when we were trying to program windows in the 3-1 days with c plus you it was called debugging by gpf right you run your code yes. the yes. windows crashes yes. <laughs> you reboot yes. and figure out what the heck happened <laughs> <laughs> and that was the whole it, thing about vb right is you no longer gpf when you ran your code it was impossible
2: yeah. Actually I have to say it took me while it took me one second to remember what GPS was. Oh my
0: god, that that
2: brought back memories.
0: <laughs> General protection oh. fault. And before that it was exactly. UAE. Exactly. What, yeah. What was UAE user
2: something error, yeah.
1: Unrecoverable application error.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it, it, it just, I have, you know, since the .NET days, we've been talking about exceptions, you know, and yeah. uh, we just haven't used that word for a while. That's why it just, <laughs> uh, it took me a, a second to go back to history to remember that acronym.
0: I think yeah. it was user application error. UA. Unrecoverable application error. Unrecoverable, that's it.
2: Ah, that's it.
0: <laughs> but that's like Windows
1: 3. Yeah, That was the... Uh... Yep. Oh, boy. Name oh that error acronym.
0: <laughs> we, could do a, we could do a whole game show. <laughs> oh God,
2: that's a great idea.
0: <laughs> this always happens when you get people who are there historically and remember all these things. That you know, my Windows machine hasn't gone down since the last time I shut it down, and it's been running now on my desk in the studio. I would say probably a couple of months. Yeah. And that was unheard of back then for any OS, not just Windows. Things blew up all the time. Yeah, it was just sort of normal. Yeah, yeah we measured our productivity and how many reboots per day. <laughs> yeah, it's, huh. it's just not like anymore.
2: <laughs> well, let me, since we're since this is a history show, I thought it would be fun to talk, uh, you know, of some of the interesting challenges that we went through sure. uh, in the last 20-year history of of uh, building Visual Studio and .NET, you know, over the different periods. Uh, let me just share some of the interesting, the inside engine room kind of perspectives with you guys, maybe.
1: Sure.
2: And I don't know if this is something that people have shared before or not. So starting with uh, the original Visual Studio .NET, and one of the, you know, that project took almost four years, was so three and a half years long. Uh, I went, and one of the interesting challenges we realized at the time, was that we were trying to go faster with the, with the product development. As you can imagine, we were very eager to bring this product to market. At the same time, we had this massive integration thing, which we called, uh, it's a breaking change integration. That's a, one of the internal things. And right. what it meant is that when the runtime, when the CORs enter development, every so often they have to make a change, which is a breaking change. And what it means when they make a breaking change is that then the c Sharp compiler that built on top of it no longer works. So the <laughs> C-Sharp compiler team will have to do some work before the CLR team can even run their own unit test. When the CLR team can run their unit test, they kind of go back and fix some more bugs. Then we can make sure the .NET framework built on top of it is still up and running, and actually their new capabilities then enabled. And ah. once that is done, we then make sure that Visual Studio, built on top of that, will continue to work. And now we can, you know, still set the breakpoint, you know, and then we can still bring the entire Visual Studio F5 experience to life. That hmm. whole internal bootstrapping process is called a breaking change in the creation. And we realize that it takes us a whole month to do one of these. Wow. And just because it, you know, it touches so many different layers, it's rebooting the entire layer. And then that's when we realized we literally have to go map out how many more breaking changes we need from the CLR yeah. team before we have the final product because that is actually what's to dictate our schedule to a pretty significant extent. And we work and work and work. We work so hard. We're trying to see if we can get this thing to go faster. And this is when we realized that there's just physics. It just cannot go any faster. Like basically four weeks is about as fast as it goes right. in one of these kind of bootstrap processes. And that is what mandates our schedule in terms of, you know, what it means
1: to move forward. Now, is that still true today or has the model shifted so that you're a little less dependent?
2: That is what happens when you're building a V1 product, when there wasn't enough capabilities, when everything has to come together. And after that, things have got significantly and substantially easier. Now, I would say that in our effort in the last couple of years, when we're trying to rebuild .NET Core, we're running a little bit into the same in a much, much smaller scale, because we're not rewriting the IDE, we're not rewriting the compiler, we're not rewriting the debugger. But just in bring the update.net core stack, we're running into a little bit of the same thing, is that we're changing the runtime and the framework and the tool at the same time. So it's a tiny, mini version of that. The, lo- the other time when we had a similar challenge was actually when we're building tools for Windows 8. Yeah. And towards oh, the very end, actually, we have this very intricate process because we have to go deliver our C++ runtime to the Windows Store. And then for them right. to then give us, you know, and to the Windows team give back an SDK. And then Windows team use our C++ compiler to build the apps and onboard it into the store. Oh, man. So there's all of these complicated intricacies to coordinate and time everything in order to have the final release of the Visual Studio that now you can build a Windows Store app that can be onboarded to the store and the store has our final runtime and there's already apps loaded in the store that knows how to to, to work properly and then it's built by our compiler. So there's a whole interesting sequencing to get that kind of uh, happen.
0: I can imagine those triage meetings must have been excruciating. Especially if, you know, if not everybody is there, like if one person is on vacation, that sort of throws the whole thing off.
2: Uh, yeah, the triage meetings were very, ha- very, very interesting because, you know, a lot of the triage meetings happen between Windows and us um, together uh, in in you know, back in that day and age. Yeah. And that was the one product release for Visual Studio where we did not get to decide our schedule because our schedule is mandated by Windows. Right. Um, and now, fortunately, now we're no longer in that, um, in that uh, architecture. We actually made substantial progress in Visual Studio itself that yeah. now we're highly componentized that we can actually have Many of our capabilities being updated almost any day of the week, as long as we have the you know the right quality to be released, and that is one of the significant improvements that we have really made to Visual Studio uh, in the last few years. So, starting with the VS twenty twelve release, we start releasing kind of a every 3 4 months you know kind of quarterly ish we're starting yeah. having a update which is full of features as well as you know bug fixes to our customers and uh, you know now i think that you know in the last release of VS 2015 uh, we can have core components like our TypeScript kind of capabilities, et cetera, be released every single sprint, every single every three weeks, if we feel like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and with this particular release, with VIA 2017, obviously now we're introducing the notion of, uh, you know, we have a new uh, Willow installer that really helps, you know, people deciding and choosing between the workloads. And there's a lot more flexibility and architectural changes that built into the IDE that allows us to update each component independently versus having to, you know, update... More of the visual studio in you, know, you know, as a as a as a unit together. That's what we had in the past.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow, I can't imagine being a part of that coordination. It sounds like very uh, painstaking, <laughs> painstaking work. But you guys did it. You pulled it off again and again.
2: We absolutely did. You know, I think this is part of that like, you have talked to many members of my team. We have a great team here um, you know, working on Visual Studio. And, and I think it really hear the passion and commitment that, you know, the folks have to make sure that, you know, developers get to use the best from Microsoft and have a great experience building apps.
1: Yeah. What re- represents an app has changed. Where those apps need to live has changed. Like it's, you've got a lot of things to follow along with.
2: I think the word apps, and how do you build app has fundamentally changed in the mobile world, in the cloud world. Uh, and how do you build app has changed. We talk a lot about our DevOps capabilities and how does the developers have to now? You know. In the old days, we deliver, we ship a product every two, three years, and that was okay. And now we're talking about how do you continuously deliver value to our customers. And that is also true. That, that is what our developers want to use our tools to be able to continue to release value to their businesses and to their customers. And, um, you know, the the frequency has changed. How things are done has changed. How do we collect customer feedback has fundamentally changed. And the customer expectation, as we talked about, with, you know, even young kids has dramatically changed. So this is not the same Visual Studio.
0: I, no. I imagine the merging with Xamarin must have been a particularly unique challenge for you guys. Can you speak to some of the challenges that you uh, that you had to overcome?
2: Um, actually, I have to say the, the integration with Xamarin was, uh, from our perspective, I think was super smooth uh, for a couple of key reasons. One is that we have been working with the Xamarin team on the technical front for at least 18 months prior to the acquisition. Mm. So we had, you know, they were working, if you guys remember, in the version VS 2013, I believe, we had the Xamarin team provide, you know, they were already adding to, they were already extension to Visual Studio. That's right. We worked with them to incorporate their project system installer into our setup. So the technical integration kind of already happened. And on the .NET side, you know, they, with the Mono framework, we, you know, with us, you know, open source, we had been having a lot of conversations and, you know, going back and forth with Miguel. Mm-hmm. We released uh, MS Build as part of open source. And then, you know, Miguel was able to very quickly take our implementation and replace chunks of the mono implementation that, you know, they had previously. Yeah. So there was a lot of technical collaboration that happened on both the framework level as well as the tools level prior to the, uh, to the acquisition. And then, you know, since the acquisition happened, uh, we, uh, you know, we really, you know, created, we pull all of our mobile assets together, and that now is our CVP running our mobile, you know, assets. Uh, and I think that just created, with their deep domain expertise, with their asset that they brought in, and with the existing asset that we have, I think we just create an extremely nice center of gravity of mobile, uh, with the Xamarin team. So, uh, it's actually, I, I know, I think has gone, really, really awesomely.
0: Well, certainly has from a user standpoint. Um, yeah, I just, I, I wondered about that because it was a, a true merging. I mean, you guys, as you said, you guys moved stuff to Mono and Mono moved, took stuff from .NET and you came up with uh, this essentially new version of .NET.
2: Yeah, and then the team really collaborated together. We worked on the, the .NET standard, which is the way we think about how we deal with all the different flavors of .NET and really allow you know a maximized co-sharing experiences for developers who are building for Unity, who are building for Xamarin, who are building for ASP.NET, who are mm. building for <clears throat> Windows. And then that co-sharing capability uh, and the fact that we have a cross-platform with great tools and compilers, that has resonated so well with developers worldwide, uh, it's actually, it's, it's really great to see. And the Xamarin asset really rounded our core asset extremely well. And we have great mobile solution now, a great cloud solution, and obviously we have the historical strengths on, um, you know, desktop and
0: server. Yeah, boy, that was uh, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and
1: I, I think I'll, we're still just seeing the beginning of that. I mean, 2017 to me feels like the first version folk where xamarin's really getting deeply embedded and i I can't wait to see what influence Miguel has on the product going forward. The guy just has such a vision yes. around software development it's 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 fun to talk to him, and it's amazing to see what gets paid.
0: yeah I totally agree yeah the the xamarin uh experience has gotten better and easier, and uh I imagine that you guys are just gonna go further and further into um utilizing miguel and and uh and his team
2: absolutely. Absolutely. I mean Miguel is such a great spokesperson for Donet and he has such fast, you know, such strong passion about Donet. You know, I feel like uh, he had a great joke. I-, I loved. I don't know if you guys heard it. He was joking about this is being the longest job interview. <laughs> oh,
0: <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's go back in history to that moment that everybody knows about when Don Box sang Miguel to the tune of Michelle by the Beatles to Miguel de Acasa on the roof of the Standard in Los Angeles during a PDC. And I think that was 2003, was it? 2003. Yep. And uh, where he wanted to, you know, where Miguel had just gone to Novell or he was going to. And uh, Don basically sang Miguel Novell. These two words don't <laughs> go together well. Miguel Novell. Yeah. And he had a flower and stuff. It was it was wonderful. So after <laughs> we found out that uh you know, Microsoft bought Xamarin and Miguel was gonna go work for Microsoft, I, I sent Miguel a text, so I guess Don won. <laughs> 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 and he says, Yep. Don box won. Yeah. It was, it took a while. Took a while.
2: It has been a while. It is fantastic to have me go on the team.
0: Is there anything else that you want to talk about before we uh, call it a show?
2: Uh, There's a lot I can talk about, but it's really nice talking to you guys. And thank you for having me on the show.
0: You bet. It's a pleasure talking to somebody who's been around as long as uh, the rest of us have uh, (laughs) using these tools. And uh, wow, what great insight and uh, perspective you have. So thank you.
2: Thank you so much. And you have a great day.
0: You too. And we'll see you next time, dear listener, on .NET Rocks. (fielfrancorrappy) (music) .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pop Studios. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a toy boy. hard.